In a world full of socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, Sally, Sally. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 17 of YDHTY, the home for the exhausted independent majority who likes their politics in more colors than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this with one friend you think might like it too. This movement grows by word of mouth. Now, it is Thanksgiving today in the United States, so happy Thanksgiving if you're listening to this on the release date and might have celebrated. And we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving like we always do on YDHTY by pretending it doesn't exist. We are just going to plow right through and pretend none of this ever happened. Now, last week, we spoke with Gabe Roth of Fix the Court, and he recommended term limits for Supreme Court justices as one way to make the body more reflective of the will of voters. And this is an idea I've been a fan of for some time. This week's guest, Susanna Sherry, professor of law at Vanderbilt University, is not. Her paper, Term Limits and Turmoil, Roe v. Wade's Whiplash, models how a Supreme Court under term limits would have overturned and then reinstated the landmark case in the years that followed, creating a phenomenon known as constitutional whiplash. We discuss this paper, the role of the court as intended by the founders, and a key problem with the court that mirrors my conversation with Gabe in the last episode. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I promised you I would ask the most, the hardest question in the beginning. And so the question I have for you is, you know, you're, you're obviously now interacting with students physically in your job. How sick have your students been this year? Um, they have been very healthy. Really? Vanderbilt requires vaccination. They're giving um, medical exemptions and um, religious exemptions, but it, I think they tell us 96% of students, staff, and faculty have been vaccinated. The stu- everybody wears masks throughout most of the building, unless you're in a private office or if you are teaching. And so when I'm teaching, I don't have to wear a mask, but the students who can't socially distance in the classroom, there isn't enough room, they have to wear masks. Um, and, and it has worked. We, we have uh, an, a very, very low rate, just even while Nashville is going down again. Um, and so Nashville's doing pretty well. But even, oh, I think it was around October when Nashville was pretty high, the Vanderbilt population was quite healthy. Yeah. So I asked this question because at the top of every episode, I try to do a noise disclaimer because I, for, for, for the listener who is wondering where I'm sitting, I am in, I am in my house I have children milling about. And about two weeks ago, my son, who's at the University of Rhode Island, said he wanted to come home for the weekend. So my wife went down, picked him up, and on the way up, he was falling asleep. And so my wife said, you don't look so good. And his response was, oh, yeah, I've been sick for a week. And (laughs) so, yeah, so needless to say, he got two COVID tests, and he was negative. And then we made him take one here. He was negative for all of them. But... I think it's almost like everybody, at least where in my neck of the woods, you know, everybody has been so isolated for so long that now the standard cold or the standard flu is just going crazy. And so needless to say, he came up here. My two youngest boys got sick. 
Then my daughter got sick. Then my wife got sick. I am now beginning to come down with it. So during this conversation, um, if I sound a little gravelly or you hear the odd cough, uh, you'll forgive me. Of so, course. And, and the listener will forgive me. Thank you. So that's, of course, I didn't invite you here to bemoan my son's poor choices, but it is fun to do so. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. You know, the big thing that kind of brought us together is one of the ideas that's come in front of me in terms of how to reform the Supreme Court is the idea of term limits. And so in doing some research, I came across some of your work that actually makes a pretty compelling case against it. And I'd like to, to dig into that. You know, I think just to level set for the listener, I want to first off get your take on what the founders' original view of the court and its purpose was, because I feel like maybe the modern interpretation has deviated a bit from that. I think that's right, although maybe not in the direction um, that you think of. Um, one of the arguments in favor of uh, term limits is that it will make the court keep the court more in step with political majorities. It will keep the court um, uh, closer to the partisan makeup of the citizenry, and so on. Um, and that's exactly what the framers, the founding generation, didn't want. Um, the courts were, and I think are, supposed to be counter-majoritarian. That is, they are unelected, the federal courts, and they are supposed to act as a break on the popular branches in order to prevent what Madison called a tyranny of the majority. Um, the problem is that short-term political or partisan desires often conflict with the more durable principles that are enshrined in the Constitution. And if the court simply followed the latest majority, um, the constitutional rights, the Constitution wouldn't be worth the paper that it's printed on. So let me just give you one quote from James Madison. He was actually talking about the Senate because they hadn't gotten, this is in the Constitutional Convention, in the convention that wrote the Constitution. They hadn't really gotten to the courts yet, um, but they were talking about the Senate. And remember, at that time and until the uh, late 1900s, the Senate was not popularly elected. The senators were chosen by the legislatures of each state, so they were an unelected body. And uh, Madison said that you need this unelected body to, quote, protect the people against the transient impressions into which they themselves might be led as a result of fickleness and passion or sudden impulses to commit injustice on the minority. So that, I think, is what the framers thought the court was for. Yeah, well, it's funny. As you describe it, too, I think about George Washington describing the Senate as a cooling saucer in a way. And the founders seem to have this fear of rash swings in popular opinion ultimately dictating policy. Again, getting back to this idea of the tyranny of the majority. And that that kind of ties into your thesis on term limits, which is the, the concept of, of constitutional whiplash, the concept that if the Supreme Court is too beholden to popular opinion or too in tune to popular opinion, a lot of these rulings would just go back and forth based on uh, based on the composition of the court, correct? Yeah, I think there'd be a lot of instability in, in constitutional doctrine if uh, we kept changing justices with the change in presidents or senates. Um, the, the article that you're referring to, a co-author and I did a bunch of computer simulations. What we did was we imagined that term limits had been in place at the time of Roe v. Wade and that two years later the most senior justice in the majority had retired and been replaced. And we looked at the actual presidents and the actual senates from their 
there until uh, the end of uh, Trump's first term and predicted based on whether the president was a Republican or a Democrat, whether the Senate was Democrat or Republican, how likely that particular nominee uh, would that particular justice would be to vote to either overrule Roe or keep it, or if it had previously been overruled, um, to uh, reinstate it. Um, and uh, what we what we found um, was that probably the most the, the best prediction we could make um, was that uh, Roe would have been overruled in the late 1980s. It would have been reinstated in the 2000s, and it would have been overruled again uh, in the 2010s during during Trump's first term. Um, and and that would have it would have produced uncertainty. It would have produced it would have um, disrupted reliance interests, and it would have created terrible problems for retroactivity. What do you do if a woman has had or a provider has provided an abortion during a time when Roe v. Wade is in place, and then it gets overruled, and the statute of limitations hasn't run out on a state's criminalization of abortion? Those people relied on the existing law, and the law changed. So the courts would have to struggle with with that question of retroactivity. One of the comparisons you drew in in the paper that that uh, you cited, and that I'll put in the show notes for uh, the listener, is the the idea of the behavior of elected judges. And I, I'm not sure how many people know. You know, some states judges are elected, some states they're given lifetime appointments. How do their behaviors differ? Actually, that's a little a little misleading. Um, as far okay. as I know, Massachusetts is the only state where some of the judges have lifetime appointments. Well, maybe um, that's my Massachusetts chauvinism coming on coming through. So forgive me for the red. For the people in the remaining 49 then, as we like to call them here. Um, it, uh, it differs in lots of ways. Sometimes judges are elected from the beginning, right? You stand for election, you get elected as a judge. Sometimes uh, you get appointed as a judge, but then you have to stand for re-election periodically. So the populace, the citizenry have a chance to essentially kick you out. Um, uh, And sometimes it's just, uh, do we want to continue this judge? And sometimes it's somebody is running against this judge and now you have to choose between the two. So there's lots uh, lots of different schemes. An important point is that during uh, when the Constitution was written, and for at least about somewhere between 20 and 40 years uh, after that, uh, state judges were not elected either. State judges were appointed. But the Constitution enshrines the fact that uh, federal judges are appointed by the president with by and with the advice of the Senate, and then they serve for life, and they don't have to stand for election. Uh, just almost all states uh, eventually changed over to the uh, elective model, and there have been studies done that show that in the a judge a state judge's last year before an election, they are much more likely to vote, for example, in favor of imposing the death penalty against the rights of criminal defendants. Um, and other and and vote uh, on other things in ways that they think different from the way they voted in their prior years, but in ways that they think that the public wants. And there have also been instances of just uh, state court judges who have voted what they felt was right and then had ca- successful campaigns waged against them for their votes. That can't happen to Supreme Court justices who serve for life. It's interesting you say that, because getting back to something you mentioned earlier about 
the tyranny of the majority or the potential for the popular opinion or the potential for popular opinion to override people's rights. You know, I'm thinking back to the 9-11 era when there were a lot of questionable practices in terms of surveillance or in terms of the use of torture, for example. And the Supreme Court protected with lifetime appointments was able to look at that without having to necessarily worry about you know, what this meant for their future. I, I would guess, again, if you were to inject popular opinion in there, you could have a situation where, again, hysteria over terrorism, for example, warranted or unwarranted, could potentially result in the Supreme Court allowing effectively a surveillance state to emerge without any check. Not not only would there have been, would it maybe have created a surveillance state, but of course, all the detentions at Guantanamo, where the court over a period of three or four different cases said, you know, you've got to give these guys a hearing. You've got to determine whether they are actually terrorists. You can't just hold them forever. I don't think that a state, an elected state court or a Supreme Court that was subject to uh, possibly being removed um, would, would have voted that way. And so I think one of the problems we get back to is I think that, you know, the reason we're having this conversation, the reason people are talking about term limits on Supreme Court justices in the first place is because they don't like the partisan makeup of the court. And so would you say, is partisanship a problem in the court? And Can if I so, what- back up and answer a different question first? Answer a different question, because it's probably better than the one I just asked you, so, so go for it. So I don't think that what people are objecting to is the partisanship of the court. What people mm. are objecting to is that the court is not on their side when it is partisan. So, yes, okay. Thank so you. if you think about it, during the Warren era, the Warren and Berger eras, and some, some of the Rehnquist era, liberals applauded the court when it was activist, right? When it was striking stuff down. Liberals um, applauded it. Conservatives condemned it because it was invalidating segregation. It was protecting women's rights. It was remaking the criminal justice system. And so there were, there were clear battle lines. Conservatives want to rein in the judiciary, and liberals think it's just fine. Starting in the late 1990s, early 2000s, everybody switched sides. Now it's the liberals who are condemning the court's activism and the conservatives who are embracing it because the court is invalidating gun control laws, limiting the ability of Congress to uh, uh, limit campaign finance, striking part of the Voting Rights Act, and almost striking the Af Affordable Care Act. So it's not, I don't think it's about that the court is partisan. I think it's mm. that the court doesn't agree with me. Yeah. And so do you think that's a, I'm going to ask this question kind of knowing the answer. Is that a problem or no? Well, I mean, it's a problem in that we ought to understand, the populace ought to understand, and certainly pundits and politicians ought to understand better what the court does and what it's for and how it does its job. And the fact that instead everybody's looking at it from a partisan perspective, that's a bad thing. Now, with that said, I, I do want to get to your the question that you did ask, which is, is the court too partisan or is that a bad thing? I, I've spent most of my career um, arguing and writing about that judges, including Supreme Court justices, by and large are not ideologues. They are human beings doing the best they can at the job that they have been told to do. They 
are looking at documents. They are some of them very old. They are looking at society. They are looking at the arguments that the lawyers make, and they're trying to get to an answer. And sometimes that answer agrees with their politics, and sometimes it doesn't. That's, I mean, people thought I was foolish. There are a lot of people who disagree with me who have essentially said all along that the Supreme Court is a political body. It's partisan. It's always been partisan. I have not thought that. The current court has me worried. That is, I, I am somewhat worried about some of the justices on the current court, on both sides of the aisle, um, that, that they may, in fact, be less interested in implementing the rule of law, protecting minority rights, and more interested um, in um, imposing their own agenda. This bleeds into something that we talked about in the last episode, which is getting back to something we said at the beginning, where you have the House of Representatives, which is very, very uh, sensitive to public opinion, the Senate, which is that cooling saucer, which is less so, and then the Supreme Court, which is maybe the most stable body that we have right now. Is it a case, do you feel like the polarization of politics that's been taking place over, let's call it, you know, the last... 30 to 40 years, do you feel that that maybe has fed its way into the Supreme Court? It may be and, getting there. It, it, yeah. that's, I think that's what I'm, what I'm trying to say. In terms yeah. of the, the um, responsiveness to public opinion, I like your, your stating about how the House is very uh, responsive and, and the uh, Senate is a cooling saucer. And uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Stone once called the Supreme Court uh, the body that gives Congress the opportunity for sober second thought. Oh. If Congress does something and the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do it. And do you think then, kind of getting to the role of the Supreme Court, because the, there are these two competing thoughts in my mind in terms of what it is. And I think the, the conventional view of the Supreme Court is that they're sort of maybe the high priests of constitutional law. You know, they are the final arbiter of what's constitutional and what isn't. The second view of the Supreme Court is that, that it is a, a much slower moving government body that is still representative of popular opinion in some way. In some ways, both of those things are true, and in some ways, they're both a little bit misleading. So they are the final arbiter of the Constitution only in the sense that they are the last one. Um, because if you think about it, our Constitution is set up so that no, nothing can become law, nothing can uh, be enforced unless, and I'm just talking right now about federal laws, States are, are similar. Um, nothing can be enforced unless all three branches of the government, and in fact both branches of the of the legislature, agree that it is constitutional. So if if the House or the Senate thinks that something is inconsistent, that a, thinks that a potential legislation is inconsistent with the Constitution, they will vote against it. They will not enact it. If the president thinks that something that an, an enacted law is inconsistent with the Constitution, the president will veto it. And if the court thinks that it's uh, that something that's been enacted is unconstitutional, the court will invalidate it. Well, actually, I mean, what they do is they prohibit it from being enforced. They, they order the party not to enforce it. And so all of the branches have some say-so 
into whether a law can be enforced. And each one has essentially a veto power. And then you have the same thing essentially with the states where you have the three branches of the state that have to agree that it's constitutional. But because of our federal system, both Congress and the court have to agree that it's constitutional. The court can, can strike it down or Congress could pass a law preempting it, right? If Congress thinks that something that a state has done is unconstitutional, Congress can, can step in and pass a law saying, no states, you can't do that. One of the things I'm thinking of too is, you know, if you look at the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, which for, for the listener established the separate but equal doctrine, which was used to justify segregation in the United it States. It affirmed it. The states affirmed. established it. The Supreme Court said it was fine. It was fine. And then you have Brown versus the Board of Education, which arguably runs in contradiction to that. Is, is that a case where public opinion has evolved to such a state that the Supreme Court has changed and that the Supreme Court's interpre- interpretation of the Constitution was different? Or did something happen between those two rulings that sort of changed the game? Well, I think it's two things. One is you're right. They, they were, of course, um, let's see, from uh, it was 1896 to, to 1954. So uh, that's almost 60 years, right? And things do change over 60 years. And I have no problem with incremental change by the court. Um, I, some of the things that the court did in the early 19th century just wouldn't be appropriate today. So things can change. I, I, I don't I think the court should be the last to change. That is, they should be sort of keeping the brakes on and changing slowly. But but I, it's interesting that you bring up Plessy, because to the extent this is a fight about how much the court should do, how active or activist should it be, if you think about the court's worst mistakes, the ones that did indeed get overruled eventually, they are almost all failures to act. They are almost all the court upholding a statute against a, either a state or a federal statute against a constitutional challenge. So and I have a list here. So in 1873, the court said in a case called Bradwell v. State um, that a state could prohibit women from practicing law. That got overruled in about the 1950s or 1960s. Uh, You've already mentioned Plessy. That was in 1896 that got overruled by Brown v. Board of Ed. In 1927, the court, in a case called Buck v. Bell, upheld mandatory or involuntary sterilization. Um, That got overruled in a case uh, in the 1950s and certainly would be... uh, It wasn't technically overruled, but it uh, was discredited. The infamous Korematsu case that upheld the relocation to, of Japanese to, to internment camps during World War II uh, in 1944, that was overruled. And then the most recent is Bowers v. Hardwick, which was decided in 1986 and allowed states to crim- criminalize homosexuality. Um, and that's been overruled. So I think that to some extent what happened in Brown is that the court finally said, enough. We're not going to let this happen. 40%, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more. And that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. 
Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. It does seem, too, getting to your comment on on failure to act, it seems like when everybody starts throwing tomatoes at the court, it's typically when they say, you know what, this isn't ours to determine. And a great example is um, Rucho versus Gerrymander. Yeah, Rucho, this is exactly what I was going to say. Rucho versus Common Cause, where the court didn't necessarily say gerrymandering was a good thing, but declined entirely to rule on it. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I, I don't, I would take issue with your claim that that's when the court gets the most tomatoes thrown at it. Okay, okay. It, 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 certainly, yeah. they've gotten a lot of tomatoes thrown at them when they have. Um, stru- uh, invalidated various state and federal statutes. And as I pointed out, sometimes they're attacked from the left and sometimes they're attacked from the right, yeah. depending on um, on whose ox is being gored. Yeah. Yeah. But a, so a, a great example here is, is the, is the gerrymandering issue where this is a, this is a practice that is largely unpopular, probably like the Supreme court is largely unpopular based on who it's favoring and who it isn't. No, and I think that's wrong. I, I, I think, so. um, I mean, the, the case at Rutro was actually two cases. One that came from North Carolina where the, the state had been gerrymandered by Republicans in favor of Republicans. And the other came from Maryland where the state had been gerrymandered by Democrats in favor of Democrats. And I think everybody thinks gerrymandering is a bad idea because they recognize that it could be turned against them. Yeah. Do you do you think, but the, but the court in that case distinctly said this isn't our this isn't the courts to determine. This is the state's. This is the state's issue. Correct. It did. That's a much harder case than a lot of people think. It is very difficult even to define gerrymandering, right? I mean, what North Carolina did, what Maryland did, those were egregious. North Carolina, the North Carolina legislators admitted that they were. I mean, this, I think what one of them said was something like, "The only reason there are ten Republican districts was because we couldn't find a way to make 11. Um, I mean, it was clear that what they were doing. But imagine a, imagine a square state, a perfectly square state, and the western half is all Democratic, and the eastern half is all Republican, and it has two districts. Do you draw the line down the middle this way, so you will have two safe districts, one that's always Democratic and one that's always Republican, or do you draw the line this way, so that you have two very contested districts that could be 
uh, could change from uh, election to election, but every but half the people are going to be unhappy in any given time. And sometimes you will get two Democrats, and sometimes you will get two Republicans. Um, I, that I think that tells you that I which one is the gerrymander. This this kind of touches on something that I've thought a lot about the state of of the country on the whole because and, and I'll I'll sort of you know, target the left with this comment, which is the the left at this point in time seems the biggest enemy of federalism. So they seem to be the biggest opponents of the idea that states should have a level of sovereignty. And the the thing that is never really brought up is if you look at the at the agenda Trump wanted to put into action in 2016, that was stymied in large part by the ability of the states to resist that agenda. But in part, yeah. federalism is sort of like the Supreme Court. If you yeah. prefer what the states are doing to what the federal government is doing, you will be favor in favor of federalism. If you prefer what the federal government is doing uh, to the to the to what the states are doing, you will not be in favor of federalism. You will want the federal government to have more power rather than less. I, I'm not sure how that filters down um, to politics, but certainly, you know, the left is in favor of things like sanctuary cities, right, and individual states deciding whether to legalize uh, recreational marijuana. You know, you you mentioned earlier too that your your big concern is that the courts are becoming too partisan right now, or that the justices may be too partisan at this point in time. How do we attack this problem? Oh, I think I could win the Nobel Peace Prize if I had an answer to that. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think it, it, the problem is not the court. I mean, it's reached the court, but the problem is our broken political system. The, the problem is, is Congress. The pro problem is the two-party system that basically encourages people to move to the extremes of their party and cuts people out of the middle. And so, yeah. so we end up with this... Um, extremely partisan citizenry, or at least the ones who are vocal are extremely partisan. Um, we end up with a, a partisan presidency, a partisan uh, legislature, and it's not surprising. It's amazing that the court stayed nonpartisan for as long as it did. This is something, too, it's something I was thinking this morning, actually, which is if you look at the structure of American democracy and how it stood up in this age of polarization, it's actually kind of remarkable. Because to your point, people hate the Supreme Court when it rules against when it rules against something they like. People hate the states when they're doing stuff they don't like. Yet, those structures also enable the also enable the courts and the states to do things they like or to promote promote ideas that they stand behind. Um, and adding to that, you know, something I was thinking about as I was you know as I was headed into this conversation was, you know, the the was the idea that it is very difficult to corrupt the entire American government to a point where you could take power or you could usurp power. And this is the genius of the founding generation, divided sovereignty. And they divided it six ways from Sunday. I mean, everybody knows they divided it between the federal government and the state government and then among the three branches and between the House and the Senate. But think about even like a dividing power between a judge and a jury, right? Again, that is designed to prevent tyranny, to prevent 
some group from taking over um, all of the mechanisms of government. And and you're right. I think it has worked pretty well. Uh, I I worry that as more and more of the bodies of government become partisan, that it will work less well. Well, in the 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 big concern, I think, and this is this is an idea I've kind of been rolling around in my head for a while is, you know, government in and of itself is an alternative to violence or democracy in and of itself is an alternative to using violence as a way to get your, your will enacted. And, and to an extent, I think when you're participating in democracy, you're saying, I don't believe what you believe is just, but I believe taking it to court or taking it to the legislature or taking it to the presidency is a better alternative than us trying to kill each other. And, and, and I wonder if these structures will last longer than the people do in a sense. Yeah, you know, I don't you, know. I, I mean, I, yeah. I think what you're suggesting is that some people have abandoned that viewpoint. That is, that yeah. some people either have already or on the or on the verge of saying, no, the whole thing is so broken that violence yeah. is better than democracy. Yeah. And, and so... You know, obviously, I'm, I'm, I invite you here to talk about the Supreme Court, and now we're <laughs> a bit off course here. So thanks for indulging me here, Susanna. Do you, when, you, when you look at the court, do you feel there's a reform needed? Or do you feel, again, to your point, it really comes from the bottom up. It really comes from just reforming our political system to the degree where things aren't so polarized. Well, I think some reforms are needed. Um, mm-hmm. But not, but not for the, so much the, the reasons that people want term limits and not term limits. The court, or at least individual members of the court, mm-hmm. have become celebrities. They are mm-hmm. playing to their fans. Um, they are writing books. They're going to, to um, uh, conventions and giving speeches, uh, that sort of thing. And that's got to leak into their uh, their uh, on-court or in-court opinions and so on. They want the, – the court is – somewhat polarized, but it's more than polarized. They're also sort of playing to their fan base, the polarized fan base. So if we could if we could stop that, pull them back into the days when most people couldn't name a Supreme Court justice, they might be able to name a case that they hated, but they couldn't name a Supreme Court justice. Now most people can, and they know yeah. whether they like that justice or not, and they know that if, a, if this opinion is written by Scalia and that opinion is written by Ginsburg, they don't have to read the opinion to know which, which opinion is right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I think that could be fixed. Um, I think also the Supreme Court is too full of itself. It mm-hmm. thinks of itself as... Um, the supreme arbiter of constitutional law. Well, yeah, they are, they are, but they are also sort of the supreme arbiter of all law, uh, or at least all federal law in the United States. And maybe we should make them ride circuit. That is, justices used to have to ride circuit. They used to literally have to go around the country and mm-hmm. be and and uh, uh, have trials. Be federal trial court judges. If we made them do that again, they might see how the, how the law is made and have a little better appreciation for the fact that they're not so special. But this isn't about partisan politics. This isn't about being out of touch with the majority. This is about egos. Yeah. Well, and this, this actually meshes really well with some of the stuff I've learned over the last couple of weeks because, you know, one of the things I've discovered is that if you want to be a Supreme Court justice, it really starts when you're in law school. 
you know, going to the right school, clerking for, you know, having the right clerkships, you know, joining, joining, the in, right, joining the right society. If you're yes. liberal, you've got to join the American Constitution Society. If you are conservative, you've got to join the Federalist Society. And because the Federalist Society is much older, um, they have been much more successful in convincing Republican presidents to focus on Federalist Society members than the American Constitution Society has been in convincing yes. Democratic presidents to focus on ACS members. Yeah, and so it almost seems to your point that they that in that process they might have lost touch. And you know, a, a, I don't know the answer to this question. How many people sitting on the Supreme Court are, are all the people in the Supreme Court former judges or no? Uh, I think all but uh, Kagan. Kagan, but Kagan was uh, Kagan was um, Solicitor General. She was also uh, nominated uh, by Obama uh, for a Court of Appeals judge, uh, Court of Appeals position, uh, but it, it it never went through. It, but this is a really good point. So if you look at until maybe 20 or 30 years ago, um, justices came from everywhere. Justice Black had been a senator. Uh, Justice O'Connor had been a state legislator and a state court judge. Earl Warren had been the governor and the attorney general of California. Um, I think it was Sherman Minton, I'm, I'm not sure, but um, some judge in the 1950s had been a, a member of the House of Representatives. Um, uh, Lewis Powell had been the chairman of the American Bar Association. So they had a lot of experience outside of uh, federal government service and particularly outside of being either a federal judge or in the, in the federal executive. I think all except um, maybe Barrett, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that... I, for a while, all of the justices had had significant experience in the federal executive branch, either as prosecutors or as heads of agencies or as or in the Justice Department or in the White House. Um, and, and I think that's that's eased somewhat, um, but it's still a fairly typical experience. And so that they they all think alike in that way. And they all graduated um, from one of, except now, uh, Barrett uh, got her law degree at uh, Notre Dame, I believe. And, I, and uh, I think Justice Thomas got his there as well. But before uh, Justice Barrett, uh, Justice Thomas was the only one who did not attend either Harvard or Yale Law School. Now, Justice Ginsburg actually got her degree from Columbia, but she spent her first two years uh, at Harvard Law School. And she transferred her third year because her husband got a job in New York. Yeah. And, you know, the, to kind of build on the whole idea of the court maybe being a bit full of itself, you know, one of the other things I've discovered, and I'd, I'd love your take on this, is, you know, the idea that the court is more important now because Congress can't seem to do the job of legislating. And so is, is I that... I don't think that's right. I don't... I you mean, don't think so? No. Um, because when Congress legislates... It legislates. It creates rights it cr and obligations. It says, you have to do this. You may not do that. Here are the rights and obligations of private citizens, right, mm -hmm. that we have to pay taxes and we're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of this, that, or the other thing. What the court mostly does, at least in constitutional cases, is decide what, the, what limits the Constitution places on government. And so... Congress couldn't authorize a state to do something unconstitutional. 
-hmm. So it's that's where the court comes in. Mm -hmm. There are there are places around the edges, right? Congress has never gotten together to to amend Title VII, the federal anti-discrimination law, to decide whether it should or shouldn't uh, ban discrimination on the basis of um, uh, sexuality as, a, as opposed to, or gender identity, right? And the court did step in and say, reading the statute, that's what it says. But most of what the court does is not something that Congress could do. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds, if I'm hearing you correctly, that... Congress and the president, their role effectively is to tell the government what to tell the people to do, and the court's job is to tell the government what they can and can't tell the people to do, more or less. Pretty but, much, pretty much. Okay. And, and that means that the that uh, the legislature and the president set the agenda. And yeah. there are lots of problems with the president and the legislature either not having an agenda or not having the same agenda. Yeah. That paralyzes them, and that's a bad thing for the country. But I don't think it has it does anything to the court. It doesn't encourage the court. It doesn't give the court more or less power. the The court doesn't the court doesn't play in that sandbox. Do you think another another question along that lines line two is the the concept of trigger laws? You know, the idea that a state will pass a law that contradicts either federal law or contradicts Supreme Court precedent with the goal of getting it in front of a friendly court that hypothetically would overrule so uh, that precedent. So a great example is the, the Texas abortion law going before the Supreme Court with the idea that it could potentially be used to overturn Roe v. Wade. Is, is that a problem or is that the system functioning as it should? I mean, that goes back to both sides can play that game. Um, that is, you know, New York or California could pass a law like Texas's, uh, but but on on gun control, for example, you know, you're not allowed to own a, a handgun, um, and we know right now that that's unconstitutional, but we hope that someday it will be constitutional. The, the Texas law is actually has other aspects of it that make it very hard to challenge. Uh, so trigger laws basically are, well, there's. There's three different kinds of laws that people are that states are passing about abortion. One is trigger laws, which basically just say if and when uh, it become ever becomes constitutional to uh, ban abortion, we have banned it. Right. So the the statute says abortion is illegal, un, but it won't take effect until and unless the Supreme Court overrules Roe. That's one kind of law. The other kind of law is the one Mississippi passed, which bans abortion at 15 weeks. That is clearly unconstitutional under current doctrine, but they passed it hoping to get it before the friendly Supreme Court um, and uh, and get a Roe overturned. Actually, there's an interesting story on that. When they petitioned the Supreme Court to hear the case, case that was before Justice Barrett was on the court. And they petitioned the court on the argument that you don't have to overrule Roe or its subsequent case, Casey. You can uphold our law under Roe and Casey, and then they had arguments about how to do it. That was in their petition for certiorari. When it came to the merits briefs, that is when they when the when the court agreed to hear it and they had to submit their briefs on why the law should be upheld, they changed over completely. Justice Barrett had now been appointed 
And they said, no, now, now we are asking you to overrule Roe v. Wade. So that's the second kind. And then the third kind is this Texas law that not only make, uh, makes abortion illegal after six weeks, but also makes it very hard to challenge that. Um, and other states could copy any of those. The, the real problem is that the people think the court is on the verge of overruling Roe. And so they're taking advantage of it. But I don't think term limits would make that worse, not better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, getting back to your, you know, your paper, too, it did show that Roe, like to your point, would have been overturned and then re-implemented at least once over between its passage and now. Do you think, though, something you mentioned, too, there is is the idea that now it's a lot easier to time a friendly court, so to speak. So now it's a lot easier when I know, for example, there's a conservative leaning court, it's a lot easier for me to time a case so it gets before the Supreme Court when the composition is in my favor. And the one thing I do like about term limits is it makes it a lot more difficult for a, a litigant to, to time a case in a way where it gets before a friendly Supreme Court. I don't think that's right. I mean, if you, you, have, so. if you have a two-term president um, you have four justices. That president uh, has appointed four justices. And if there's even one holdover from some previous president uh, uh, who was less than 18 years ago that is also of the same party, you know what the court looks like. Um, and, and, and so I, I think that that's, it is whether or not you can time your litigation for a, for a friendly court doesn't depend on term limits. Um, it depends on how fast you can move the case through the courts. And some things can move pretty quickly. So, for example, one of the reasons these abortion cases can move through the courts so quickly is because the law is so well established that there aren't any hard questions. It, the, the, it doesn't take the, the federal trial court very long to strike the law down. It doesn't take the, fe the federal court of appeals very long to affirm that. And then you petition for cert. Whereas hard, open questions, it might take longer. First of all, the Supreme Court likes on hard questions, the Supreme Court likes to wait until a lot of lower courts have chimed in and done the analysis and gone off in different directions. And then the Supreme Court has a much better canvas, has a much better idea of the issues at stake. Lots of people have looked at this and they have so that the Supreme Court has all that to consider. So in those sorts of cases, you probably couldn't time it, but you can't time that now either. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I'm thinking, too, as you're talking is getting back to the issue of partisanship. You know, I think it'd be it'd be easy to see how in today's polarized environment, a the justices who would be appointed every two years would be more representative of that polarized political climate climate, not less. Um, I think in some sense, um, it's even worse than that. That is that a president who knew that he or she was only going to get two appointments per term might want to maximize the influence, the, the president's influence, and therefore appoint the most extreme justices possible. It is also possible that the justices who were appointed, who knew they only had a limited time, would um want to maximize their influence by reaching the most extreme results possible. And then, of course, there's the problem of what are they going to do after they are retired? Unless all of a sudden um, presidents start appointing justices who are much older, 
most of the justices will have another job after they retire. And I mean, imagine if uh, the if the court seems polarized now. Imagine if some justices plan to work for the Cato Institute when they retire from the court, and others plan to work for the ACLU when they retire from the court. Um, or pick your favorite conservative and liberal uh, institutions. Or even they want to go work for business. They want to go teach at a university. You think they're going to they're going to be independent and impartial when ruling on questions that affect businesses or universities. So so I think term limits would actually make all of this a lot worse. Yeah. So you've converted me off term limits, um, <laughs> is, which congratulations. Is there anything that we're not thinking about with the Supreme Court that we should be scared of? Is there anything Americans should be more focused on? Well, one possibility that I've thought of is to put a minimum age, right? We have a minimum age for, for representatives, for senators, and for the president, all in the Constitution. And, and maybe we should put a minimum age quite high, say 55 or 60, uh, for Supreme Court justices, which would do several things. First of all, it would achieve some of what term limits are designed to do, right? It would ensure a more regular turnover. Um, there wouldn't, there probably wouldn't be justices on the court for 30, 40 years. I'm not sure that's a real issue, but if that's what term limits people are trying to avoid, that, that might help. But it would also ensure that the justices had more experience, more wisdom, um, just maybe uh, were a little, and, and maybe a little less ego, because they would be older. Well, Susanna, thank you for your time. Um, I want to wish you and the rest of the uh, student and academic body at Vanderbilt a healthy remainder of 2021. Thank and you. And I'd like to send a message to my son, John, that if he wonders why I'm screening his calls, he can listen to the beginning of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving a review to tell everyone how great this is. And if you didn't, as always, please keep this between us. I will have a link to Susanna's work in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just click the link that says episodes in the upper right-hand corner and you shall find. Now, takeaways from this conversation. Courts are supposed to be counter-majoritarian, meaning they are not supposed to reflect popular opinion. So as Susanna mentioned, this means very often we'll fault the Supreme Court for failing to act rather than intervening too quickly. And regardless of which side of the aisle you fall on, you've seen its benefits, whether it's striking down provisions of the ACA or those of Trump's travel ban targeting Muslims. Now, the other is Susanna's echoing of Gabe's point in the last episode that polarization and potential partisanship in the Supreme Court is really a reflection of what's going on in politics in general. And this only reaffirms my longstanding belief that electoral reform is the key to better government overall, because if we remove a system that encourages politicians to be polarizing, we can expect the justices to be less polarizing as well. Now, here is an interesting tidbit leading up to next week's episode. Justices are expected to be above politics today, but this was not always the case, and you will have to listen in next week to find out why. You see what I did there? Look forward to seeing you. 
as always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.